The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. In this particular text, and we're going to read here in just a second, from verse, uh, we'll start at verse 15 actually, and then we'll go through verse 32 right up until the actual death, if you will, of of Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that next week. But there's a specific thing that seems to run through that is commented on more frequently um, and with greater intensity, like frequent, really, really common through this particular account. And it's the idea of the mockery that Jesus Christ went through. Other gospels may talk more about the beatings and about the trial. There's different emphasis that each author wrote. But this one in particular speaks um, with great regularity about the mocking that Jesus went through. In fact, in these verses that we're going to look at, the actual crucifixion itself, it's impossible to miss this. But, but once you notice it in general and really focus in on it, it's really tough to miss. So this is what I want to do. I want to read this text, read through the, the whole text too, and I want to give you three things that this mockery that we see actually reveals about the hearts of the people involved and about our own hearts as well. Um, but this is a, um, a big text. This is an important text. And, and, and so I'm going to do a couple things. First, I'm going to give you guys some imagery that I brought back with me from Israel to be able to maybe help you with, with, with picturing this in your head. I don't know if you're a visual learner like I am, but a lot of times as I'm reading, it's like I'm trying to wrap my head around the picture of actually what goes on in that. And so um, the first pictures I'm going to show you, there's two places in Israel that are um, reputed to be the actual location of the crucifixion. Um, now, one of them has been Catholiced up, and that's not uncommon. Actually, it's, it's, it's actually an argument between the Catholics and the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, I think, or is it the Greek? I can't remember. But um, between them, there's been a battle. It's a shared place, and there's been fights over this for centuries. In fact, you could look this up online. I should have brought a picture because this is a funny story. But outside the actual church, there in the city of Jerusalem, Way up high, there's a window, way up high, and outside the window, there sits a ladder. It's like a step ladder leaning against the wall next to those windows. And it looks really weird and out of place. You've got this, this grand place. You're going into one of the uh, reported crucifixion locations, and there's this ladder. That's like, it's like a construction crew never put this ladder away. And the story to that is really interesting. It's actually evidence of the tension between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. One of them said, they left it there, they need to move it. And the other said, they left it there, they need to move it. And that ladder has been there for hundred over a hundred years. Still sits there to this day. Why can't we all just get along, right? Christ praying for unity before he goes to the cross and here at the crucifixion place they can't even decide who should move a stupid ladder and it's still there. But I should have brought you a picture. It's funny. But this is one of the locations. Um, Inside they've built, as you would imagine, a church over top of this particular um, location and in it it is as many of those locations are. It's just incredibly gaudy. It's just filled with, with icons and gold and decoration, and it's hard to see, but if you look, can you see right here to the left, there's a glass case, and then inside under this table, there's another glass wall, and under that, those glass cases is the stone, 
And they say that this is where the cross was mounted. This is one of the locations. And so it was really um, difficult for us to go there because when you go inside, when you're dealing with um, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they're both filled with so many traditions and so much religious practices. And it was just, it was intense and it was difficult and it was emotional in a bad way for many people in our group when we went. We were going into this place and you're making your way up the stairs to get to the top where they've enshrined this stone. And, and you're at the place where the most humble act in the history of the world took place. And literally everyone is pushing and shoving, doing, being anything but humble as they try to make their way to this particular location. And then you get there and there's all sorts of these religious practices. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to doubt the heart of the people that are doing this because they are sincere in what they're doing. There's tears. Like they, they mean what they're doing. But it just, it looks as if the wrong thing's being worshipped. I don't know how else to say that. Um, There's a stone there that according to tradition is the stone that after the body was taken down that that's where they wrapped the the actual body of Christ. And these, these women come in with these scarves. It's become this thing that they do. And they have to rub their scarf on this particular stone and then wrap the scarf around them. And, and it has become this incredible um, ritualistic religious thing that you're looking at and you're like, this has nothing to do with the actual crucifixion. Um, and, but in it, if you go to the next picture, you can see here, here's the stone inside one of the actual cases. And then on the other side, if you'll go to the next picture, you can see um, there is the other stone as well. And so according to some tradition, this is the place where Christ was crucified and they built the church on top of it and they've kind of enshrined all of that. Now, do we know exactly where Christ was crucified? No. But if you were to ask me, to place a wager, and being a Christian, who would ever do such a thing? But if I was to place a wager on where it is, my money wouldn't go here. My money would go to a different place. Let's go to the next slide if we can. This is an area that is now referred to as Golgotha. Um, If you go to Israel, you'll find it's right outside the gate that they would have brought Jesus through. There's so many problems with the original location, not to mention the fact that it's inside the city gates and he was supposed to go outside the city gates. And there's a whole lot of things that don't seem to make sense, but but this fits everything. And and as you're looking at this place, remember Golgotha was known as, as you're going to see in the text, the place of the skull. And while it's difficult to see right here at this particular location, there was a time when the rock formations were in a different place that it actually seemed to resemble almost a face in the stone. If you'll go to the next slide, would you please? Here on top of this mountain, there is now a cemetery that has been built by the Arabs that are in control of that particular district. And on the signage right there, you can see the words where it actually says in Arabic and in Hebrew, it says, there, are, uh, there is no prophet but Muhammad. Um, because they are aware that this is considered a holy site by Christians who come to visit this place. If you'll go to the next slide, please, for me. And when you go there, this is in the area of the garden tomb, and Golgotha is right there, just outside the city gate of Jerusalem. They have this photo that's set up in this exact place that gives you the ability to look at what that location looked like many, many years ago before some of the rocks actually fell the way it has. And the benefit with that is you look at it and you're like, wow, that does kind of look like it. But you're also thinking, well, it's changed this much from then till now. How much did it change in the 2,000 years since? So we, we really don't know. Okay, we really don't. But it is interesting to look at. If you go to the next picture, here's a better image of the rock in the background. And oh, it's hard to tell here in this room, isn't it? Go, go one more picture and let's see if it shows up. 
No, go back. You can almost tell that in the photo to the side, if you, I don't know how to explain it. It's probably tough for you guys to see from back here, huh? Are you guys seeing, you're like, Jeff's seeing a face in that? What is he smoking? No, um, but, but you can see there was almost this, this outline as well where you could see that it could be referred to as the place of the skull. It's also right next to the garden tomb where tombs were put underneath, which was not uncommon. It's on a hilltop where the crucifixion would have been taken place outside the city gates so travelers coming in would see the criminals there. It was considered a very big deterrent, that type of execution. And so it was intended to be done publicly in a place where lots of people would see. Um, the trash heap was here. There's all sorts of other reasons why this would fit. And so I'm not a betting man, but if I were to, I would say this is probably the location where literally on top of those rocks, if you go to the next slide for me now, on top of those rocks, it's very possible that that's where the crosses were affixed and that that's where Jesus Christ hung when he was crucified. So, so in your mind, if you can picture this location here publicly outside the city gate in an area where people coming and going would have seen him, and in fact, the hill is so big that you would be able to see them even from inside the city gates in many places. So this is a really public thing. And I think even some of the Hollywood version movies we've seen of the crucifixion don't do it justice because there's usually only a few people around and it looks like it's way off on this remote hillside. Not true. The city is right here. The massive, huge city of Jerusalem's right there. And it's right outside. I mean, throw a rock and hit the wall of the city of Jerusalem from this particular location. So this would be very public. There's no way you're in the city here not knowing this is going on, especially, consider, Passover weekend. So everyone's here. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the city that wouldn't have even been there a week before. People are traveling into the city in time for Passover. There's festivities. You would even make your way to the temple through this gate. I mean, people are everywhere, and it would be on top of this hill that the naked body of our Savior would be crucified in full public uh, display for everyone. And so with that in mind, kind of if, if that helps you in any way, gives you some sort of picture as we read through this text, I want you to kind of get your mind wrapped around what we're actually going to read and what we're going to see. Um, but at the same time, if there was ever a text in Scripture that deserves us, um, our, our, our respect, that, that we should honor, if that makes sense, um, especially in light of the dishonor that our Savior is going through, I think it would be this one. Um, so, so if you will humor me in this particular thing, would you, would you all stand with me as we read this particular text together? And it says this in Mark 15, beginning in verse, we'll start in verse 15. So Pilate was wishing to satisfy the crowd and released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others and he cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Lord, we just pray that you would just show us your heart in this text. That, Lord, we would again be encompassed with awe at the humility and the way that you served us. And the way that you loved us. And, Lord, for the areas in our life where we have mocked, whether intentionally or, or not, I pray, God, you would grant us repentance. And I pray, God, even tonight as we come to your table, you would bless us with your presence and just an incredible opportunity for us to remember how great you are and how much we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated now. Thank you for that. So here we see in the text, regularly, Jesus is being mocked. Whether it be the guards putting the fake crown and the fake robe and all these things on him and mocking him as king and bowing, spitting on him. Whether it be passerbys that are coming in and out of the city. Oh, you can't even get down off the cross and you're going to tear down the temple. Whatever. Whatever the Even the thieves that are hanging there with him, there is mockery going on. Jesus is constantly being mocked when he's there. And there's three things that the mockery going on in this scene, I think, can show us. Um, I think that the mockery we see reveals our hearts, our weakness, and Christ's heart. So let me tell you quickly what I mean by that before we go to the Lord's table. Let's talk first about our hearts. How does the mockery that is being poured out on Jesus Christ reveal our own hearts? Well, think about it like this. When did they start to really hate Jesus? How, when do people in our day and age hate Jesus? No one hated Jesus because he was a teacher. Nobody. I mean, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Who wouldn't love that stuff? Forgive one another, serve one another, be humble, all of that stuff. Don't live just for money. I mean, a lot of those are values that even the unbelievers in society even to this day still uphold as being good. So no, no one's mocking Jesus over his teaching. And if you think about it, even some of his hardest teachings that he gave were given in parable form so that only believers understood what he was saying anyway. And so today, if you were to ask people their opinions about Jesus, what will they say? There's a lot of people who are not believers in him, do not believe that he's the Son of God, have no desire to follow him, but one of the things they'll jump to right away is he was a great teacher. 
He taught a great way of life. He had this morality about him and his philosophy was good and should be upheld. No one hates Jesus for his teaching. No one does. Miracles? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, why would anyone hate a guy who's healing the sick? I mean, he was doing things there that the priest should have been doing, praying for healing and doing all this kind of stuff. Jesus was doing the things that God could have been doing through the nation of Israel for a long, long time. And he's restoring families. I mean, think about the lepers that have been outcast, not just from the city, but from their families that are now able to come back in. Think about, I mean, In one case, he brought a dead guy back to life, for goodness sakes. I mean, who's going to have a problem with that? We can't handle this Jesus. He's like really killing our health insurance rates right now. And we, I mean, no one hated Jesus for his miracles. He made him wine, a lot of it, really good wine. I mean, people benefited from his miracles. So it wasn't that. People didn't start to hate Jesus until he started making claims. And in particular, when Jesus began to be hated, it was over his claim to be what? King. King of the Jews. It's what we see in this text. When he began to, now the religious leaders, yes, will go on and deal with the blasphemy of what he's called, but in reality, what he's saying is uh, the Messiah himself is to be king. So we're talking about this idea of lordship. He's king, he's in control, and if this is true, submission is required. And at that point, mm, we're out. That's what happened. Whether it be the religious leaders, the people that stopped following him when he was making some of these claims, or whether it be into this particular today. The reason is, when Jesus claims to be king, it forces us into an all-or-nothing decision. When when he's just a teacher, there's no real pressure of authority for us to really, we can pick and choose. Oh, I like that teaching, I'll apply it here, or whatever. There's no real pressure on us to do anything. He's not in a position of authority, he's a great teacher, and we can learn from him. If he's a healer, great. We know where he is. If we need something, we can go to him when we need help. But when he says he's king, it pushes us into an all or nothing. Now we either accept him or we don't. And if we accept him, that requires full and total submission, even in a way that I don't think we as Americans even fully understand because we haven't lived in this whole kingship society for a really long time. In fact, we've been told kings are bad. That's what our history lessons tell us, right? Oh, evil monarchy and all these kinds of things. But when Jesus says, I'm king, it pushes us into an all-or-nothing decision. And so faced with the claims of Christ, how did people respond? Well, they responded in many ways the same way they do today. They mock him. We need to mock him. He's not really king. Let's make fun of some of these claims. Let's disprove him. Let's deride him. Let's mock him personally. Let's expose him. Let's try to take these different claims and make him unbelievable so that we don't have to believe these claims. It's what we do in many cases. It's what we've done in politics. It's what we've done with presidents. In many cases, if we, if we can't deal head on with the claim, then if we can attack and mock and embarrass and make this guy someone who is publicly ridiculed, then no one follows him, and we don't have to deal with the claims anymore. And, and really, why do we do that? Because who, who, who do we want to be king? Us. And that's really the heart of it. 
from the very beginning, from Genesis 3. That's the very heart of it. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what I think is right. I think I know what's best for me. I want to be in control. I do not want to submit. What was the things that even the religious leaders were saying to Jesus during the trial? We will not have this man rule over us. And so when Jesus makes a claim to be king, the mockery that's happening against Jesus Christ, and it's the same kind of mockery that happens today. Um, oh, what's her name? Is it Anne Rice, I think it is, that wrote uh, Interview with a Vampire, and she wrote all these different like, um, books. She became a Christian not all that long ago, and she went to actually write a book about the life of Jesus Christ. And so she spent a great deal of time researching it. And she came back, and there was this whole article and interview where she was talking about it, and it's actually in the introduction of the book that she wrote about Christ. She goes on to say, I have never, ever encountered the type of mockery and derision that exists in the history, historical approach of the person of Jesus. It doesn't happen with any other character in the history of the world. I mean, name one historical, credit, or historical character that goes through the kind of ridicule that Christ does. When people are writing papers about William Shakespeare in school, no one's doing research and pulling up articles that mock William Shakespeare, try to disprove William Shakespeare. Oh, he didn't really write this, or he's a jerk. Or he's, like, that doesn't happen with any other historical figure on the face of the earth for all of time. But it happens with Christ. Why? Because when he makes the claim to be king, it pushes us into an all or nothing decision. And in reality, we want to be king. We want to be in control. And we will not have this man rule over us. And if we can't mock him enough to make him go away, then we'll murder him and get rid of him. And history has been trying to do that for a long time. He didn't really exist. He's not really there. Or books like Da Vinci Code and things like that. Let's discredit him. He had a wife. Oh, he was a prostitute. He was all those kinds of things. Praise God for the scriptures that have withstood every attack that has happened for the history of the world. He is still there. And it's because his claims are true. And so that pushes us into a place. If Jesus was standing here before you right now and said, I'm king. Could, could we analyze even our very lives and say, he is, and therefore I'll submit. The second thing is this. The mockery reveals our own hearts. The second thing is this. It reveals our weakness. One of the reasons that we want to be king over our lives is because we think we know what we need better than anyone else. We think we see things the way that they ought to be. We think we know what we need better than God. We know how we should be treated better than God. We know our wants and needs better than God. We know how we should be taken care of better than God. We know what our future should look like better than God. That's one of the reasons that we complain to God when things happen to us that we don't think are right or that we deserve. It's because really, when it comes down to it, we want to be king because we want to call our own shots. And we think we see things well. But think about this. Here's these people walking in and out, walking by the soldiers, all these different people, they're mocking him. And they're convinced they're right. And right in front of them, at this very moment, the greatest act in the history of the world is taking place right there. The greatest act of love, the greatest act of strength, the greatest act of humility, the, the evidence of his godship, the fulfillment of tons of prophecy that they had claimed to know and study and were anticipating. It's all happening right in front of them. Not to mention the fact the person that they're mocking is God. Like He created 
everything. He's right there, and they completely missed it. The greatest event in the world is happening in front of them, and they completely missed it. Why? Because they wanted to be king, but also because what they were witnessing didn't look like the greatest act in the world, didn't look like the most important thing that's ever happened, didn't look like the most powerful man in the world. You know what it looked like? It looked like weakness. It looked like failure. It looked like suffering. And those aren't things we want when we're king, right? We don't want weakness. We don't want failure. We don't want suffering. We don't want any of those things. We want to be king because we want to make decisions in our life that give us success and prosperity and comfort. And this doesn't look anything like the life we have chosen. And so here's this incredible act going on right in front of them, and they completely miss it. Makes me wonder this. What things might God be doing in, through, or amongst us even right now, that we are completely missing because it doesn't look like that which is attractive to us? What suffering might you be going through that God is using to do an incredible redemptive work in your life right now, but you're missing it because it looks like weakness and it looks like failure and it looks like death and it looks like pain and it looks like suffering and all the while God might just be doing something. I mean, think about it. Think about this. The Bible tells us that we see through a glass dimly. We don't see everything exactly the way that it really is. Who wrote those words? That'd be who? Paul writes those words. You know what else Paul wrote? Paul said this. I was going through some difficulty, and I was given a what? A thorn in the flesh. And three times I asked the Lord if he would remove this thorn in the flesh. Begged the Lord if he would remove this suffering. God, will you just take this away? And what was God's answer to him? He got one answer. It was really simple. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, what is it that made Paul able to trust those words and then in fact turn and preach those words, though we, as far as we know, that thorn in the flesh was never removed from him, but he was able to take confidence in that because he knew that Jesus Christ himself had been in the garden and three times in prayer while the disciples slept saying, Lord, will you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And because he knew that Jesus Christ had received a crown of thorns, and was ridiculed and mocked for his behalf. That Jesus Christ, even in this moment, the greatest redemptive work in the history of the world, it just didn't look like we thought it should look. Because we were looking for power and and success and all of these things, and it came in humility, and it came in suffering, and it came with blood, and it came with pain. But God knows what we need better than us. And if he had come in victory then, his blood would have never spilt. We would still be dead in our sins and we would be worse off today than we ever have been. God knows what we need better than we do. And so in the difficulties that you're going through in life, and, and, and we are so quick to go to questioning God. And, and listen, I think God's fine with that. He's patient. He understands. The, the scriptures tell us that our, our flesh is but dust, that God understands we are but dust. He looks at us as a father pities his child. When a, when a kid scrapes his knee, don't we feel bad? Don't we want to take the pain away? 
when you take your kid to go get inoculated or, that's controversial these days, but shots or any of those kind of things, right? I mean, when the pain comes, don't you wish that you didn't have to expose your, your child to those shots? But also, don't you know that through that moment of suffering, there's a much greater work taking place in that child's life? And so maybe in our lives right now, maybe there's situations we're going through or questions we might have for God or difficulties or pain or suffering that we see around us, in us, whatever the case may be. And maybe because it doesn't look like quite what we want or expect, we're missing the fact that God might be doing an amazing work. It's our weakness that shows this. And the third thing is this, his heart. I think the mocking that's going on here exposes his heart. Because think of this. They're mocking his weakness. He can't even come down off the cross. They're spitting on him. They're doing all these things to bring him down, if you will. And, and, and they're rejecting, obviously, his authority, dressing him up as like a king and pretending to, you know, bowing and mocking his lordship and who he is. But think about this. They have no clue. They think they're mocking weakness and they have no clue how powerful the man standing before him, before them really is. Like, don't mistake and think, poor Jesus in this setting, look what they've done to him, and think that like somehow his power got taken from him in that moment. It never happened. When they came even to arrest him, they're like, where's this Jesus? And he says, I am he and the people are just blown backwards from him. I mean, he is powerful. This is the man that the scriptures tell us in Colossians holds all things together. The power that he has is immeasurable. And he's standing there right in front of them. And they see weakness and they're mocking this. But the strength, with one word, he could unleash the kind of power that they can't even possibly imagine. But think about it. What kept Jesus on the cross then? Because they're mocking him. You can't even come down from the cross. It wasn't weakness. Weakness did not keep Jesus on the cross. He was not too weak to come down. It wasn't the nails. They didn't use galvanized nails, and that was just a little too much for Jesus to get by. It wasn't the ropes. It wasn't the beating. It wasn't the guards standing around with spears. It was his will. It was his heart, and it was his love that kept Jesus on the cross. Plain and simple. What, didn't he say, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. He said what? Greater love has no man for his friend than he lay down his life for them. And so what's happening on the cross is the greatest example of strength, love, and the heart that Jesus had for us. And think about it. The beatings, the mockery, the spit, everything that took place, he willingly went through it for our behalf. He willingly endured all of it. The nails, the shame. Don't miss that, by the way. The shame, that's a shame society in Israel at that time. If you lose, you could lose a whole lot of things, but once you lose your name and your reputation, you're ruined, you're shunned. So why do you think they put him outside the city gates? Because they want people to see this. Why do you think they put the sign that says king of the Jews above his head? They want people to know his claim. They want them to see his weakness. They're hanging him there naked, humiliating him, exposing him because they want people to see this is the guy who said he's king. He's not because they don't want people to follow him anymore. They're trying to ruin him. 
And this whole rebellion of sorts that he's leading, this whole following that he has, they want to end it, nip it in the bud, embarrass and humiliate Jesus, and then all of this goes away. That's the goal. That's what they're doing. They don't want people to honor him because he's been so shamed. There's this movie, I love old movies, and and there's this movie with uh, Cagney and I I forget who else is in it. It's from 1938. It's called Angels with Dirty Faces. Anybody ever seen that movie, just out of curiosity? There's a few, there's a few. Um, You've seen clips of it before, even if you didn't know it, if you saw the movie Home Alone. Because remember, Macaulay Culkin uses that old clip and he's like, keep the change, you filthy animals. Remember that? Okay, that's from that movie. And, and in that movie, it's just a powerful example of this. In that movie, there's these two kids that grow up in Hell's Kitchen, New York. One of them's name's Rocky, and one of them's name's John. I'm going to cheat because I'm going to read. Jerry, Jerry. Now, Rocky, that's Cagney grows up to be this like famous, well-known throughout all Hell's Kitchen in New York, hardcore gangster. He's ruthless. He's got this gnarly snarl. He kills people just for fun. Everyone knows who he is. He is violent. He is arrogant. And he is brash. And he's famous. Because in this poor, difficult area, Everybody knows who he is, and he's the guy with the money and the power, and everyone's afraid of him. And so a lot of these little kids in this poor air are growing up idolizing Rocky. Now, his buddy that he grew up with before he became a gangster is this other guy named Jerry. Jerry grows up to be a priest. They obviously go in some pretty different directions. Though Jerry has always been a friend to him and always tried to befriend him, they go in two completely different areas. And Jerry ends up working in Hell's Kitchen, trying constantly to reach out to these young boys and convince them to go on the straight and narrow, instigating or instituting programs to try to save these kids, to keep them out of a life of crime. He's housing tons of boys in the basement of this church, just giving them a place to stay, orphans and such. And he's constantly trying to help these kids, and he's failing. Because what he seems to have to offer to these kids is nowhere near as attractive as the power, the rule, the wealth, everything that this guy, Rocky, seems to have. Well, as the movie goes on, Rocky ends up in this horrible gun, you know, shootout. The cops end up hitting him, but he survives. He gets arrested. He goes put on trial. He's found guilty, and he's going to be executed in the electric chair. And so, like the night before he's to be executed, Jerry, the priest, comes and visits him. And Rocky's like, man, I really appreciate you coming to see me like this. You've always been a good friend to me. I really appreciate this. And and Jerry, the priest, says to him, I'm I'm actually here to ask a favor of you. He says, a favor? Ask away, man. I'm going to die in a few hours and I'm here in prison. I, I don't know what in the world I could possibly do for you. And he says, Rocky, you have been a strong angry, arrogant, people know who you are, your reputation, all of these kind of things, proud man. But what if I was to ask you to spend your last day, as you go to that chair, what if I was to ask you to show a different kind of strength, the kind of strength that can only come from God on high? What are you talking about? He goes, I need you, I need you to go to that chair, a coward, so what are you talking about? Just listen to me. I need you to go to that chair, a whining, sniveling, crying, weak, yellow coward. 
you must be kidding me. And the guy puts up this whole fight. Do you know who I am? I have lived this whole way, and these guys got me, and you want me to show weakness now? No way, man. And he goes, listen to me, listen to me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about these boys. They idolize you. Rocky, they idolize you, and they want to be you, and they look up to you, and the only hope they have is if you are shamed. You need to be shamed. I'm asking you to do this because it's either you or them. That's what he says to him. And Rocky says, I'm going out the way I came in, man. So the next day happens. The execution's there. The priest comes in, and it's Jerry to read the text as he's being walked in, and he walks in with this snarly smile, and you're like, it's not gonna happen. And he walks off screen. You don't even see him. And then there's this powerful, like it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, and you start hearing, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. No, I don't. And he starts crying and screaming. And the priest, it just shows his face and he just starts looking up and he's just praying. And it's this powerful, powerful moment. And, and, and here's how this is such a great gospel picture. Because you and I are the kids. And it was either him or us. Jesus endured the shame to show what sin does. Even the mockery that he's going through is an example of the shame and the guilt and the death and the folly and the stupidity of sin. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and endures shame for us that we might have hope to not have to walk that same path and end with that same. He took our death for us. That's the heart of our Savior. So as you go to the communion table right now, I want you to think about those things. Is there a place in your life where you have refused to give God lordship over your life? What in your heart may have been exposed even as you're thinking through some of these things tonight? If you're not sure, ask. Like David, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Go to the Lord and ask. What about weakness? Are there areas in your life that you've been going through difficulty and struggling and maybe even found yourself questioning God? Why is this happening? What is going on here? I don't deserve this. Why do the wicked prosper and all those things? But maybe God is doing an amazing redemptive work in your life and you just don't see it yet. And so maybe now is the time to go to the communion table and hold in your hands the body and blood of Christ and realize that what looked like weakness What looked like death, what looked like failure was the greatest redemptive work the world has ever seen. And maybe it's a time to just, again, put your trust in him and what you're dealing with. Or finally, maybe you just need to be reminded of the heart of our Savior that endured that shame for us, that carried that sin for us, that all of the the sin you did, yes, the sin you did right before you came to church was on that cross and he willingly took it for you because he said it's me or them and I'm going to do this so that they don't have to and the greatest power the world has ever experienced willingly suffered and died and went through that kind of shame for you and for me oh how he loves us let's pray God, had you not endured that shame, we would never have a chance. Lord, we thank you so much for this reminder in Scripture of what you endured on our behalf, for this reminder of your heart, this reminder of our hearts. Because, Lord, it's easy for us to look at this text knowing what we know, 
and pretend like we are the ones that would have been the faithful followers at the foot of the cross. We would have never mocked you, and yet so many times in our lives, our very actions have done the exact same thing. Lord, help us to understand that we are the guilty sinner that has rebelled against you, and it is your mercy on the cross. Even as you said from the cross, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are so thankful for your grace and the revelation of your son that it pleased you to give us. And so God, as we go to your table right now, as we think about our own pride, our own desire to be king, our weaknesses and our failures and how they plague us, May it resolve for us to just understand your heart and again tonight put our trust in you. So thank you, Lord, for this time. May you be with us in Jesus' name. Table is over.